uh, you'll come across passages that you just don't remember writing in the first place, which is a very odd thing. It's very, you know, certainly you've, you've had the experience of rereading something and not remember uh, the process of originally reading it, uh, but uh, you don't realize until you actually try and write something that's quite large that you can forget about something that you've written as well. Um, so, uh, you know, the process itself is something that I, I guess I would love to talk about in addition to, you know, sort of the content of the book. So, the um, so you, you sent this in to the publisher, and they said, we'll take it. That's right. So, most people would say... Good. Where do I get the check? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, yeah, no. I, 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 I said it's sort of a, a yetzer hara, you know, it's a, 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 this this sort of evil temptation, which uh, you know, sort of pulled me into the process of of working on it. You know, an, an, another another six years, really, and then sort of the final process of you know, sort of indexing and and, and so forth. So. Yeah, yeah. What can I say other than you know uh, that we, we? I guess we, that's why we give uh, ask for forgiveness on, on Yom Kippur, right? So rewriting the Talmud. Yeah. So let's start by giving us an overview. What tell tell us about sure. the content? What is this about? So so there are actually two Talmuds. Uh, one which has its its roots in the land of Israel, which is uh, we refer to it as the Talmud Yerushalmi. Uh, the Jerusalem Talmud, we refer to it as the, the Palestinian Talmud, um, and uh, this, is, this is a commentary on the, the earliest rabbinic work, uh, the Mishnah, so it takes the same, the same sort of um, structure as the Mishnah, although it's not written on every single tractate, there are certainly a large number of tractates that are left out, uh, but it was, it was uh, you know, composed uh, sometime between uh, the beginning uh, of the third century and the middle of the fourth century, so it took about 150 years uh, of composition. Um, we think that that probably the people who who actually put this Talmud together were actually writing uh, that it was actually a written commentary uh, on the Mishnah, and um, you know we actually have probably a, a, a text which is either the same or very similar to uh, the, uh, the, although it's a little corrupted, but pretty much the same as the text that uh, left the land of Israel somewhere around the year 350, probably in a, in a written form. Uh, and that, that's one Talmud. That Talmud that I, that I just described, that's not actually what people mean, what, what they're talking about when they talk about the Talmud. The Talmud, when they, when they use the, the definite article like that, the word the, and they refer to it, they probably mean the Babylonian Talmud, which is what, what is really the canonical text. It's, it's, it's a, uh, again, it takes the form of a commentary on the Mishnah. It was written in Babylonia sometime between the the third century and it probably ended sometime in in the late sixth or the early seventh century the the work on that on that uh, Talmud and that Talmud we think even though it was composed as a kind of a fixed text it probably was not written down it was probably preserved as an oral tradition and so just on that level the fact that we have these two Talmuds one of which was probably written and it comes from the land of Israel and is a commentary on the Mishnah and a second which comes from the, from Babylonian is probably not written down that alone makes these two Talmuds very very different and they're going to look very different in their character the way they're written uh, is, is maybe some even some of their concerns uh, that said 
Shockingly, these two books also share a lot of the same themes and concerns and even the same rabbis, the names of the same rabbis, uh, the, um, many of, much of the same content, uh, and even share some structural features uh, in terms of the order in which you know, arguments about, about the Mishnah can actually take place. Um, so these two texts are very similar and yet they're very different. Uh, another great difference that we should take into account when we're thinking about these two texts uh, is that the Babylonian Talmud is about three times, three to four times as long, three to four times as large as the Palestinian Talmud, as the, the Talmud Yerushalmi. Uh, and so that also makes it you know, quite different. It contains uh, much more of what we call agudic material, non-legal material. Um, it contains much more biblical interpretation, uh, and it also uh, contains much more uh, midrash, uh, meaning derivations of, of laws and also filling in of gaps of biblical verses and biblical stories. So um, these two Talmuds, at the end of the day, we would say they're very, very similar in that they share a lot of the same content, a lot of the same themes, they, they talk about a lot of the same rabbis, and yet they're very, very different as well. Uh, and so the, the genesis of this project, uh, the origin, the thing that got piqued my curiosity when I started thinking about it is, well, why do these two texts look so much the same and simultaneously look so different from each other? Uh, and there's been a lot of, uh, I guess you would say, lively scholarly debate, I guess is the way to th talk to, to think about it, uh, around the relationship between these two Talmuds uh, since the, uh, the 19th century. Uh, and the two predominant views seem to have been that, well, on the one hand, there were just like traditions going back and forth between Eretz Israel and Babel, between uh, Palestine and Babylonia, that these two, uh, that these traditions went back and forth, that rabbis went back and forth, um, and that two different commentaries on the Mishnah, one in the land of Israel, uh, was was uh, you know created by a group of rabbis there, and a second uh, a set of commentaries the rabbis in Babylonia made, and that, that, that's how we get these two, two Talmuds. And essentially, because they're both talking about the Mishnah, so very similar concerns are going to sort of rise up, and they didn't really know about each other, and maybe some traditions came from, 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 from uh, Israel to Babylon, and maybe some traditions from Babylon went to Israel, but the, the, the bulk of, 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 of influences are not going to be because because the two texts or the authors of the two texts knew about each other's books. Uh, that was one view. The other view was no, they knew about each other. They absolutely that the Babylonian Talmud knew, it had a copy of the, uh, of the Talmud from the land of Israel, of the, of the Yerushalmi. Uh, there's an obvious reason why this might be the case, and that's because uh, the, the Talmud in the land of Israel, as I said, was probably finished sometime in the mid-fourth century, uh, and the Talmud in Babylonia was probably finished sometime in the mid-sixth. So there's a 200-year period where the Talmud from the land of Israel could have come over to uh, Babylonia and then influenced the, the, the writing of, of the Talmud, or, or maybe even the Talmud in Babylonia was written having knowledge, the people who wrote it had knowledge of, of that text that we call the Talmud Yerushalmi. Um, and, um, you know, I was, I was very influenced by a, a book that had come out 
um, in the early 2000s, uh, written by Alyssa Gray, who's a professor of, of Talmud at, at the Hebrew Union College, uh, Jewish Institute of Religion in New York. Uh, she called it a Talmud in exile, and her claim was that, in fact, yes, that, that in fact, uh, you could see that there were lots and lots of places where, um, in fact, uh, themes, concerns, statements in the Babylonian Talmud seem to be drawing on the Yerushalmi, even though the Mishnah that they were commenting on didn't call for those statements or themes or 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 uh, things of that nature. And I, I read that book and I was very influenced by it. And I thought, wow, she seems to be really, really right that there are places where you can see this influence very, very clearly. Um, but at the same time, if that were true, then then why doesn't it look you know really like it? Why are the, Why is it that you have, for instance, uh, attributions of statements to rabbis? It's the same statement in the Bavli and the Rishami, or essentially the same statement in content, and you have different rabbis uh, who are attributed with that statement, one in the Yerushalmi and one in the Bavli, for, for instance, and a lot of other kinds of things of this nature, where it does seem like there's influence, but it's, all, it's weird influence. It doesn't make sense, right? Like if I were going to, to quote an article that I had read in another journal, I would quote that article, and I wouldn't say it was an article written by somebody else. I wouldn't just randomly change the name uh, and say somebody else in the field wrote that article. Uh, and so this is a, it's a very strange mystery. Why? And the mystery is twofold. It's the one, one side of the mystery is why does the Bavli look so much like the Yerushalmi, right? Why does the Babylonian Talmud look so much like the uh, the Talmud from from Palestine, and then on the other hand, why is it that it looks so different, right? And so this is this is I think the conundrum. I think this is the real problem. And so I was really interested in the more than the results. I was interested in what's the dynamic behind the results. Okay, if we see that there's influence, and we also see that the influence is um, is in fact you know strong and enduring, but it's also really weird influence. It doesn't seem to make sense as direct influence. It seems to be like, you know, some bizarro text that's like halfway between the Bavli and the Urshami influencing each one. So that is one theory, right? People talk about uh, the possibility of a third text, of a third Talmud that may have existed at some point, which had influence on both of them. Um, I'm not a big fan of making up texts that don't exist. I'll just say it that way. Um, and I, I thought th that's not really a good solution to this problem. It's kind of, in fact, kind of a capitulation to say that something's the case. So um, with your permission, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about, give you an actual example of one of the, the kinds of things that I'm talking about and um, give you an illustration. Then you can see what my solution actually is. Um, I also want to say before I start talking about this example uh, that, that, in fact, um, uh, how, how do I want to put this? I, I, I guess the idea is that um, anything you say about the Talmud may in fact be true, but there will be many counterexamples. If the Talmud is anything, it's inconsistent. So what I'm going about to say and the example I'm about to give is true within a particular passage. And it's even true within a very extended passage. And there are lots of extended passages that for which this is true. But in my process of, of doing the research for the book, uh, you know, I discovered, as everyone who does work in rabbinics knows, that the Talmud is inconsistent. And there are lots of passages where what I'm going to say isn't exactly true. And so I should just mention that 
that before I before I continue. So okay, so here's my example. So my example has to do with uh, a, a situation that I think probably lots of, uh, of folks who've had experience in the religious Jewish community have encountered, which is that sometimes Rosh Hashanah comes out on Shabbat, right? Has this ever happened? You've, you've experienced this? Sure, sure. Right, of course. And so normally on Rosh Hashanah, what we do is we blow shofar, but uh, the, you know, we see that, in fact, the Mishnah tells us that in the temple, when uh, Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah coincided, they would blow shofar, but they would not blow shofar outside the temple or at least outside of Jerusalem, right? It's a little, Mishnah is a little unclear, but in any case, the idea is, is that the practice we have today of, of not blowing shofar uh, on Shabbat is is essentially what the Mishnah understands is the right way to do things. That's not a surprise, right? Most of what we find in the Mishnah, about 90% of what we find in the Mishnah um, is is actually what we do. I say 90%, but it's, an, it's not a precise number. You understand what I mean by that. Mostly what we do is what's written in the Mishnah, right? So this happens to be one example, okay? So if you were to go and you were to talk uh, to an Orthodox rabbi uh, and ask why is it that we don't blow uh, shofar on Shabbat. For that matter, if you went to most conservative and reform rabbis, uh, they would probably also give you the same answer because they've all read the same Babylonian Talmud. Um, and they would say, oh, it's, it's some kind of a rabbinic prohibition. It's not forbidden by the Torah. The Torah wants us to blow shofar on Shabbat, but there was a, a very you know, careful deliberation by our sages, and they said uh, that that they're concerned that perhaps what you're going to do is you're going to carry the shofar through a public domain on Shabbat, and you're going to wind up violating Shabbat, and that that's the reason that we don't blow shofar on Shabbat. Uh, that actually is the conclusion of the discussion in the in the Babylonian Talmud. The reason that they'll tell you that is because uh, they're reading. Uh, the either the Babylonian Talmud or they're reading uh, one of the medieval digests, uh, such as the Mishnah Torah or the Arba Turim or the Shulchan Aruch, which actually digests the conclusion of that of that discussion in the Talmud. Um, which you know that's you know how rabbinic tradition worked in the Middle Ages and how it works in the contemporary period as well. But of course. Uh, the fact that I'm giving you this example means it's much more complicated than that. Um, and in fact, what we see is a, is, is, is a, a fascinating development. Um, when we look at the Talmud Yerushalmi, uh, we discover there that uh, there is a tradition uh, which assumes that, in fact, the Torah prohibits the blowing of shofar on Shabbat. Uh, there are two passages. Uh, one in uh, Le uh, Leviticus, uh, Leviticus uh, 23, and the other in Numbers. It's actually going to be our Parsha in two weeks, in Parshat uh, Pinchas, uh, where that talk about the blowing of shofar on the first of the seventh month, on the month, what we call the month of Tishrei, right? On what we call Rosh Hashanah, even though the Torah doesn't call it that. It says, one of the, the verses says, Yom Truah Yelechem, right? That it should be, you should have a, a day of blowing the shofar. The other says, Yom Zichron Truah, that you should have a day of Zichroning, right? Which probably means memory or talking about or stating uh, the blowing of the shofar. And so the tradition in the Yerushalmi says, oh, what does that mean? Why is it that we have these two verses? One verse is talking about a weekday in which you actually blow it. The other verse is talking about Shabbat when you, when you don't blow it. 
Um, and so very clearly, it's based on biblical verses there, uh, and the passage goes on to make it abundantly clear uh, that uh, as far as the, the, the thrust of the Yerushalmi is concerned, blowing shofar on Shabbat is forbidden by the Torah. It doesn't say why, right? It just says it's it's forbidden to do so. If I were to if I were to try and understand in context what's going on, looking at other texts, I would probably say the issue was noise. That the Yerushalmi thinks that making loud noises on Shabbat is forbidden. Um, not to say anything about Shira here, uh, but 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 yes, as far as the Talmud Yerushalmi would be would would think probably what we do in terms of Shira here, they would probably say is a, a forbidden activity. I'm not sure if that's the death of fun of, or not, but 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 nonetheless, that is that is probably well, what for, would be going for on. For anyone who's been here with with the uh, singing and the banging and the jumping on the tables, yeah. well, it's Shabbat Ramah style. It's, <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So. Um, Apparently in Babel, they, 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 in Babylonia, uh, they, they also did not like the idea uh, that noise was prohibited on Shabbat. Uh, we see this in a number of places where they, they, they don't like the idea uh, that somehow the process of singing or dancing um, is, is, is problematic. They do admit it in a couple of places because the tradition from the land of Israel is that, that dancing and singing and clapping and all of those things, singing loudly, uh, are probably, are probably prohibited, uh, on Shabbat. The, the Babylonian Talmud doesn't, doesn't like that idea and kind of poo-poos it in a couple of places. Uh, not completely, but, but yeah, it frowns upon the idea. So I think the Babylonian Talmud would be much more approving of the, uh, the process of shira here uh, in Camp Ramah. Uh, one of the fascinating things, though, is that we see when we look at the passage in the Babylonian Talmud about blowing, blowing shofar on Shabbat is that they, they first, or, or the way the passage is set up, they first bring a tradition from the land of Israel that is from two more or less unknown uh, uh, Palestinian rabbis uh, that, that presents this tradition. And then you have the statement of, of Rava, who's a very, very uh, prominent uh, Babylonian rabbi, who says, you can't say that it's impossible to say uh, that it's forbidden by the Torah because um, it's not included in uh, the classic list of 39, the 39 forbidden labors on Shabbat. And in Babylonia, they, they assume that anything that was not on that list of 39 things is forbidden rabbinically. I'm not sure that that's actually what's going on in the Mishnah, but that's how they understood it. And so then he brings uh, the statement of his teacher, uh, Rabbah, uh, who, says, who appears to say the following thing. He, says, he appears to say uh, that, in fact, um, it, is, it would be permitted to blow shofar on Shabbat, uh, but... We are concerned because everyone has an obligation to hear the shofar blown on Shabbat. Maybe what they'll do is they'll take their shofar to uh, a teacher, to a baki, an expert who can teach them how to blow the shofar, and they'll they'll take the shofar through the four the four the uh, the, the four uh, the four cubits of the public domain, which will then result in a Shabbat violation, and that therefore you know it'll be uh, a prohibited act. This is the building of the fence. 
Right. right. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. But what, what, it, what actually the thing that's actually going on underneath, by the way, by the way, the, it also this the statement appears in three other places as well. It appears once in Sukkah and once in Megillah also, where we have the same explanation for why we don't read Megillah on Purim and why we don't Lulavanetrog. the Lulav on, 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 on Shabbat on, on Sukkot, why we don't take it on, on Shabbat on when it's Shabbat and Sukkot, the first day of Shabbat and Sukkot coincide. So um, the thing that's that's actually rather interesting uh, is that um, Rabbah's statement actually doesn't seem to have originally been about Sukkah, meaning Lulav or Megillah or the blowing of the shofar. Instead, what he, the original statement seems to have been about when you actually look at another passage in the Talmud and Beit says it seems to have been about uh, have buying a, a new vessel before Shabbat and taking it on Shabbat to dip in a mikveh uh, and that the statement is being taken from that context and plopped down uh, in order to, uh, to sort of match up, I guess you would say, with the need that, that Rava has in that discussion of blowing shofar on Shabbat. So what you actually end up having here is a case which is so fascinating uh, that, in fact, probably originally in the land of, 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 of Babylonia, you just had uh, you know, Rava's statement, the statement of the Babylonian rabbi. And in the land of Israel, you probably had the statement of the Palestinian rabbi. That material came over to, to Babylonia at some point, and the two things were put together. But they didn't match in structure the discussion in the Yerushalmi. And so a third statement had to be had to be added. That's the statement of Rabbah talking about, you know, caring in the public domain and all of those those types of things to make it match up with the same kind of three point structure that you had in the in the Yerushalmi. So so they so the uh, Babylonian rabbis had the Yerushalmi Findings, but it didn't sit well with them. The the halacha didn't. The, yes, that's it, exactly it, it. That's exactly it. The 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 idea is this, and this is really the crux of the idea. That in fact, what happened is that the Yerushalmi came to Babylonia, and Babylonia in Babylonia they had already had their own developing Talmud that they had developed a tradition of explanations about the Mishnah that didn't match up with the Yerushalmi's explanations of the Mishnah, but they kind of had to accept the Yerushalmi as a text and sort of process their own text on the basis of what the Yerushalmi had because it was from Israel and, and there was a kind of authority that it had. But, 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 the, but in both cases, neither of them, neither the Yerushalmi or the Bavli ever wanted to permit blowing of the shofar. No, and that's because the Mishnah, the Mishnah doesn't permit it. The question here is, is, is it forbidden by the Torah or is it forbidden by the rabbis? And the position in the land of Israel seems to have been it was forbidden by the rabbis and, uh, excuse me, that it was forbidden by the Torah in, in, in Israel. And in Babylonia, it seems to have been that it was uh, forbidden by the rabbis. And there had to be some kind of reckoning between the two. So what happens is that they have the same concerns because they the, these concerns arise from the Mishnah. And there's an initial period period of development where Babylonia develops its own independent tradition. And so it has a shared concern from the Mishnah, but it has a different conclusion. And then later on, when the actual Yerushalmi comes to Babylonia, they have to respond to it. And so what happens is uh, you originally have, let's say, in the mid-fourth century, two texts that share the same concerns, but don't share the same structural uh, issues at all, don't share the same structural uh, 
argumentation. And then when the Yerushalmi comes over, they have to rewrite, rework really, because it's probably not a written text. They have to rework their, their Babylonian Talmud on the basis of the Yerushalmi. And so this dynamic where it's like a three-part process where like, one, there's, there are two, these two independent groups working on an explanation of the Mishnah, one in Eretz Israel and one in Bavel, and then a later period where the material comes over from Eretz Israel and prompts a rewriting, as it were, of the Talmud. And I recognize it's not really writing, it's probably some kind of oral process, but we'll call it a rewriting because that simplifies things. Um, that that's the dynamic that stands behind the two texts. That's, and that's why it is that the, the, uh, the Babylonian Talmud has so many shared features with the Yerushalmi, but also looks so different. Um, and that's, that's the basic idea. That's the basic idea. Um, now, that's a very, I just want to say, the way I just explained it, it sounds very neat, right? Like all the pieces of the puzzle fit so nicely. Uh, and that should probably make you a little suspicious of it because nothing in life is really that, that neat. And as I said at the beginning, right, there are lots of passages uh, that I've uncovered in Tractate Rosh Hashanah, which is the tractate I use to sort of, as my data set, uh, there are lots of passages, extended passages that work this way. There are other passages that don't, uh, and that was that was actually one of my issues when, when I talk about sort of going back into the dissertation and feeling this temptation to alter things, is that looking back on how I did things as a student, I wanted all of the pieces of the puzzle to fit. That's what you want to do when you're a student. You understand what I mean by that? But then when you're actually working as a, you know, as a researcher and a teacher, you want to you want to actually sort of make the point, well, life is actually a little bit more complex and more messy than this. Um, and so I wanted to include all those uh, reservations, let's say, uh, and to show, and also I'm, I'm emphasizing the passages that work the way I'm claiming to, but I also want to show the passages that don't work the way I'm claiming that they work. You also have a, a certain... Uh as a, I, I certainly understand that feeling as a student, it's important that it all fits together. But you, you have more confidence as as a scholar with a more veteran scholar. You, you can you can say, all right, it doesn't fit here, or it doesn't fit there, and still have a hypothesis that you. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that that. Um the the I, I was I, I guess that's ex it you know when you leave when you put your ideas out into the world you want them to uh, to be uh, to represent how you really feel about how the world works um, and uh, you know uh, I think I had you know life experiences a variety of different kinds of life experiences uh, after I finished writing the the dissertation that changed. Uh, my attitude about the world that that I thought the world was was kind of a a, a a place in which everything fit and made sense and that's how I felt when I was young uh, and as I got older I realized well there are lots of actual you know messes that are that abound in the world um, and you know why should our our tradition um, ignore why should I ignore uh, the fact that yeah things mostly work one way right that that i'm confident that things mostly work one way but they also work in this very messy way too there's chaos uh that's underneath a lot of this order as well so that is uh, i can't tell how much i appreciate this this explanation of of a very uh i'm sure painstaking work and and yasha koach now is this the kind of book let's say uh um, uh, not a, let's say you're not a Torah scholar. Let's just say you you're familiar with synagogue. You're a Daf Yomi kind of person. Right. Is this the kind of 
So, so the book is really is really organized um, along, I guess I would say, three lines. The first is that um, the uh, introduction uh, to the book I think is very is very readable by by anyone. The the introduction itself is pretty accessible. Um, the middle of the book is all of the examples uh, where I go in, in, as you say, a painstaking, detailed way uh, through, uh, through, you know, sort of many of the passages uh, that I'm dealing with as my examples in the book. Um, and that may be for, for specialists. It may be something that, they, um, that, that, that a person who was, um, you know, in a synagogue setting or a, a generally educated reader um, might not find the most enticing thing. Um, then at the end of the book, I have a conclusion, which also summarizes some of my findings, which is somewhat more accessible and is written in kind of an easier style. Uh, and then there are a series of, of appendices uh, which actually deal with, uh, present texts. They just kind of present texts and how texts work in parallel. And those are, those are very interesting, of course, because those are rabbinic texts and rabbinic texts are always very interesting. So what I would recommend is this. If people are interested in the possibility of purchasing the book, um, they should go to the, 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 the website. It's more Zebeck, uh, M O H R S I E B E C K more Zebeck. Uh, that's the German pronunciation. Uh, go to their website, uh, look for the book. They have a, 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 a table of contents and a reading sample, which is the, the bulk of the introduction. Uh, up on the website. You can take a look at it. You can read through the introduction. And if it's something that you, you find enticing or interesting, um, you, you, you should go ahead and read the book. That's what I would suggest. Um, that said, the book is 90 euros. So uh, that's about $110, I think, something like that. Uh, I would recommend getting it out of the library. Uh, go to your, and, and in fact, this book is going to be most, my sales are going to come mostly from library purchases. And so what you should do, if you're in interested is you should go to your local library, either an academic library or a public library, and say to them, hey, I think that this book is something that you should really order. You should really own this book. Can you please go ahead and order it? Certainly, any day school should, you know, yeshiva should have it in their their library. The camp here hopefully will have copies. And when you go to the library and tell them to buy the book, tell them you heard about it on Kovramah. Exactly. we're going to get a percentage. Exactly. There you go. Rabbi Mordechai Schwartz from Jewish Theological Seminary on his brand new hot off the press book, Rewriting the Talmud. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. My pleasure. On Kol Ramah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Kol Ramah, 102.3 FM. Shidur yashir mimachaner ama ba Berkshires. Marishim kaitz ba'avir. Radio Kol Ramah, 102.3 FM.